The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. Let us continue with our reading and explanations from the teachings given by the Tibetan gurus to the disciples in yoga which are grouped under the name of the collection, which is called the Yoga of the Disciple. And we spoke about, we were in the middle of this chapter, set of ten precepts called the ten necessary things. And it started like with a a priority, an order. The first necessary thing is to have a great aspiration to liberate oneself from the chain of reincarnation. The second is that you should have perseverance. The third necessary thing, so they are put in an order, like the first, the most important, the one which comes next, then the third one. And then starting with the fourth one, which starts our evening tonight, they are not having a numerical order, The author didn't feel the need to keep up with the the fourth, the fifth. It's not like they are strictly in a numerical sequence. But he simply says, again, so now we read the fourth of the ten necessary things as the Tibetan yogis saw that. Again, what should comprehend that as with a man dangerously wounded by an arrow, there is not a moment of time to be wasted. So the fourth thing, the fourth important thing is, don't waste time. This wasting of time is a crazy thing. It's like I've seen so many people wasting time, And it is like people are waiting for their life to pass away. It's like people are waiting for their life to tick away. It's demonstrating very clearly that people don't know what to do with their lives. Okay, in your life you want to eat good food, you want to get dressed into nice clothes, you want to sleep in a comfortable bed, you want to travel and see a lot of cool things around, is that all? And then how, for how long can you keep it up like this? Like mean, if you ate lunch and your stomach is full and you are already in, dressed up in nice clothes and uh, you have done or you have a very comfortable room and all the rest, then what is there to do? I remember when I moved coming from a communist country and having been involved in yoga for years, and thus not being very much related to the society around, but still, that was a peculiar society. And when moving and living for a number of years in Copenhagen, in Denmark, I was flabbergasted walking on the street, because the first thing which I saw were people sitting on their ass with a bottle of beer in their hands and drying themselves up like flies in the sunshine. Like not doing anything. The clock was ticking. People were very cozy, sitting with a bottle of beer. To me, that sounded like an utter waste of time. Like, I fully understand the need of people to relax 
And I am a people who enjoys life in many, many ways. And as a tantric teacher, I'm not even imposing on people too much of an ascetic mentality or a self-punishing mentality or anything like that. So I'm not saying that a person may not want to read a book or to watch a movie or to take a walk in the nature or something like that. But I've seen people who are way beyond that. They were at the level where they like wasted time. They didn't know what to do with that time. And meditating carefully about this condition, making samyama with it, I realized pretty soon that these people had a pretty empty life. Like in their life, there was no hope. There was this essential ingredient called hope. There are some people who hope, who believe that they could reach nirvana. There are some people who believe, who hope, that when they will die, they will die consciously, and they will be able to cross the bardo consciously, and they will be able to get enlightened in the moment of death, at least, if not before then, or and that they will be able to choose an excellent afterlife destination for their afterlife existence. There are people who hope that when they will die, they will manage to keep the continuity of their consciousness, exactly like somebody going into a lucid dreaming, and that they will be able to continue their memory, existence, and everything in the afterlife. There are people who hope and believe that when they will die, they will be able to reach the kingdom of heaven and have immortal life, and together with that immortal life, bliss, bliss forever, ecstasy with God. Those people who believe and hope such things, they move their asses for it. They say, okay, who do I have to kill for that? That's such a big goal, I would do anything for it. Nothing is too big for that. Even if I have to work 60 years, like a lifetime, what's 60 years compared to eternal life? It's worth it. It's worth it that you invest 60 years and then you get 60 billions of gazillions of trillions of bazillions of years of consciousness and bliss. It's the best investment you can ever do. Therefore, generally the people that hope, they are having a sense of urgency. The clock is ticking. In this life, I found out about enlightenment. In my previous life, I've been just doing trade. I've been selling rubber and buying uh, wood or whatever I did. You know, so I just wasted my time doing something. I was a spiritually ignorant person. In this life, I somehow caught this incredible train. In the next life, I don't have any guarantee that I will remember again this. Because look around you. There is less than a person in a thousand in this world that actually remembers or hears the spiritual message in a concrete way. I'm not talking about the fanatics who go to churches and sects and cults and this. Because to me, those are people who don't do much practically. Those are people who are fanatics and they profess a belief. And that is good. But I'm talking about the people who understand practically 
practically things and do things. And therefore, what I'm saying here is this. There are many people who say, you know, this may be a rare opportunity. Then how do I use it? I remember that that time that, of course, I, like everybody else, would need to rest, would need to watch some jungle green, some nature, some trees, a sunset. No, there are many, many things which we do to relax. But that relaxation is just like the relaxation between great efforts which we do. We do efforts and efforts, and then when we get tired, like everybody else, we take a bit of rest, and then when we feel that we are strong again, that then we make one more push, one more step forward. But this thing, see how beautiful the Tibetans put it. Again, so again, another priority, another important thing. One should comprehend that as with a man dangerously wounded by an arrow. Every human being is compared with a man dangerously wounded by an arrow. Which means what? You could die any moment. You could die. It is theoretically possible that one person in this crowd tomorrow will be dead. Just today somebody was telling me, I'm so disturbed, they didn't know it was this bad astrological period. I hope you all know, and I already heard so many people ignore this and bumped their heads. If there is a very bad astrological time for another 10 days, as long as Mars is in the astrological sign of the Aries, and it gives lots of violence, accidents and stuff, especially in the area of the head. And today somebody was coming and telling me, I'm so disturbed because three people died right in front of me today. They were cleaning some sewer or something, some well, and they fell into it and they choked because of the toxic gases and they died one. The second tried to save the first, fell in and died. The third one tried to save the previous two, fell in and died. And the fourth one is in intensive care in the hospital because almost died. It's all because of... a bad astrological time related with Aries, and this is producing in many of you anger, difficult emotions, lots of things are there. So realize that what is happening since 20 days is not only you, but it is also a patch which is astrologically added and which is very well known in the world of astrology and which is very toxic emotionally and also which is pretty uh, damaging in terms of accidents, bad synchronicities, and things like that. So, but even, even without that, as I said, there is always a chance to say, by tomorrow one person in this gathering might be dead. There is a chance, there is a probability. doesn't matter who that person would be. I'm talking in general terms. That's why the Tibetans say, as with a man dangerously wounded by an arrow. If you are dangerously wounded by an arrow, you might get away with it, you might die. If you die, if you are dangerously wounded by an arrow, you have to mend your business, right? 
You have to fix your final affairs. You have to say goodbye to those that love you. You have to write your will. You have to do all the necessary things, not to mention that you want to take the last rites and whatever else religiously you want to do, because there is no time to waste. When you are dangerously wounded by an arrow, there's no time to fool around. Hey, shall we go and have a donut? Shut up. You know, you are dangerously wounded by an arrow. There's no time for donuts right now. Are you crazy? No, it's like, what are you thinking of? It's the same here, the Tibetans say. Again, one should comprehend that as with a man dangerously wounded by an arrow, there is not a moment of time to be wasted. Yes, let's be humane. All, none of you is a machine. It's true that you differ. There are people of different temperaments. For example, the people in psychology that are called by the temperament of sanguine, the sanguine temperament, they are a more fun-loving, airy, foolish, superficial typology. And the typology which in regular physiology is called the melancholic typology, the melancholics are silent people who think a lot of the past, who speak little and do much, and these are the kind of genius people who you don't hear them talking for a long, long time, for many hours, and then they come with a brilliant idea. These are the introverts, the people who are melancholic. And therefore, it differs. I have seen people doing sanguine, people doing yoga. Sanguine people would do yoga like this. 20 minutes of yoga, go to the computer and do something. 10 minutes of yoga, speak a little bit in the telephone, 15 minutes of yoga, go and have lunch, uh, no, after lunch take a nap, then a little bit more of yoga, then a little bit more of frolicking. I've seen melancholic people doing yoga, six hours straight, like that. Not even going to the toilet for six hours, just yoga, six hours. That There's a difference in temperament, and we cannot change that. So everybody has to fight with the weapons which God gave to them. The Latin said the eagle fights with its talons and the bull fights with its horns. You're not going to ask an eagle to fight with its horns because it hasn't got any. You are not going to ask a sanguine person to do yoga like a melancholic person would do. And you are not going to ask a melancholic person to do yoga like a sanguine person would do because it drives them crazy if you interrupt them all the time from their yoga practice. Therefore, we know that everybody needs rest and recreation into, into different proportions, into at different times, with a different rhythm. Everybody has a different style because the temperament can be different. So this, I'm not saying that there should not be rest and fun and this but as with a man dangerously wounded by an arrow, there is not a moment of time to be wasted. Yes, have, have some fun. Take a break. Have, have some R&R, rest and recreation. Because without those, you would break down psychologically and you'd become a mess. There is an art of knowing how to manage yourself. There are people who go into a business... They push themselves too much 
and three years they are burned out. They have chronic fatigue syndrome. They have fibromyalgia. They have everything. They are burned out simply because they used sheer willpower to be good gophers for their president, for their big VIPs. They wanted to prove themselves. They want to advance quickly in the business hierarchy. They are, oh, doing 110% and then they are burned out. At some point, you can just, either they go to a mental institution, they suffer from asthenia, they suffer from depression, like many, many people get burned out because they don't have this simple art, how to live in your own shoes, how to listen to your own temperament. There is a way of doing things which fits to your own temperament. And thus, that is very important to know thyself, to know yourself and to know what you can do and what you cannot. But still, either you are sanguine or melancholic, you should still know that there is not a moment of time to be wasted. When melancholic people don't want to waste a minute, they behave in a certain way. When sanguine people don't want to waste a minute, they behave in another way. Let everyone behave according to their nature, but still let everyone behave as if there is not a moment to waste. Because life is relatively short. And in a relatively short life, you are trying to reach a goal which is gigantic. Reaching enlightenment in one lifetime which means reaching enlightenment in one lifetime is special. Usually people reach enlightenment in six lifetimes, in ten lifetimes, which means a lot of time ahead, a lot of efforts resume time and again. You also don't know if this is your first life of spiritual intense search, or maybe you are now in your fourth life since you search and actually it's the sixth life because two meanwhile you got confused you search for two lives then in the third one you got confused and you didn't remember then in the fourth one you came with a vengeance and you said god why did i forget and then in the fifth one you forgot again and now you are in the sixth one and you are hoping that this will be the last one Or maybe there will be another three, four, five lifetimes to build up to a full spiritual realization. Therefore, remember that to reach enlightenment in one lifetime is considered to be a big prize. It's considered to be a big accomplishment. Therefore, don't take it lightly. This is something to be taken very seriously. And that's why there is indeed... Not a moment of time to be wasted, depending on each one's temperament, of course, depending on each one's style. In the moment when you start wasting time, God's truth is that you waste time because you have doubts. You are not sure anymore that you can reach eternal life. And then either you watch a movie or you scratch your ass, or you do a hundred other things, who knows? Yeah, 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 I have a belief that 
it might be possible to reach some exalted state of consciousness called nirvana and save your soul and um, yeah but is it worth it to give up your time in the pub or your time in the club or your time just for that maybe which means you are not really hundred percent there if you would be hundred percent there there will be not a single hesitation like people who walled themselves into a cave no, like for 12 years I'm going to stay walled like a prisoner into a cell. Everybody runs away from prisons and there have been Christian monks and Tibetan lamas who put themselves into a cell, into a dark cell on purpose in total solitary confinement to force themselves go crazy or reach enlightenment. There is no alternative to here. Either you sit on your ass and masturbate until you go crazy or you do meditation and you reach nirvana, you know? There is no more. It's like you push yourself against the wall. You burn your ships. There is no way of going back. This is a radical, fanatic way of proceeding, which in some circumstances did give results to men and women who were of infinite determination, of infinite belief. But what I am trying to say is this in the moment when people do not behave as if the time is of the essence, that is actually because people don't believe that they are going to make it. It's not black and white. There are a hundred shades of gray. It's like people believe 30% that they could reach Samadhi in this lifetime by the age of 50. Then they do some effort, but not a hundred percent effort. They also waste lots of time. In the moment when you wait for your life to pass, because how much can you masturbate your five senses to just get pleasure of the senses? Some people live in this pseudo-hedonistic philosophy that what do I want to do with my life? Oh, I just want to have fun. I just want to have fun over fun over fun because life is short and you should enjoy it to the bone. You should suck the marrow out of the day. You should suck the marrow out of life. Therefore, all you can do is just enjoy yourself. Go as strong as... And how much can you please yourself? You There is a limit. Your nervous system can't take more. You took a delicious breakfast. You masturbated a couple of times. You took a nice walk. Eventually, it's like, what can I do anymore for my five senses? Nothing, you know. Grab the bottom of my trousers and throw myself up, you know. It's like, what to do? It is a well-known thing that people in this life, they get bored. That's why the rulers rule the crowds with bread and circus. Bread for survival. But if you give people just bread, it's not enough. You have to give them circus. Because people are suffering, suffering from this levity, from this superficiality. They need to be entertained. People, people are dead poor and they don't have bread for their children. And they play poker or dice or something. And they lose all their money. And then they are dejected. And people need all the time, they say, what shall we do? Let's do something fun. Why not do six hours of yoga? Uh, but that's not fun. For Milarepa, it was fun, because for Milarepa, it was like, I'm going to Nirvana, straight ahead. But if you don't have the faith of Milarepa, then what is happening is that you want to have some fun. 
There's nothing wrong with having some fun, except when all your life becomes just frolicking around for fun, and there is nothing serious. There is nothing imp of importance. That is why, remember, that in the Christian theology, the, up, uh, the uppermost, the utmost sin is not murder, it's not sodomy, it's not incest, it's not, you can take most of the sins that you consider abominable and they are not on the top position. The sin which is on the top position in Christian theology, way higher than rape and blasphemy, is hopelessness. If you lost your hope, you lost your soul. Because the man or the woman that still has hope in some sort of salvation, if when they come to the point of killing somebody, they will have second thoughts. They will say, wait, 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 wait. If I do this, it's a, it's a ticket with no return. It's a one-way ticket. Am I prepared to do that step? Like if I really go there, then it's a different chapter is starting for me. I lost my hope. No, I don't want to do this. Most people will have qualms because they still have hope. But in the moment when you've got no more hope, you say, fuck, what difference will it make? None. There is no salvation anyway. There is no God. There is no eternity. There is no soul. So either you kill somebody or not, either you waste your life or not, what difference will it make? In the moment when people feel this uselessness, this hopelessness, this fruitlessness, which leads many people to suicide as well, that's one of the worst things possible because when you lost your hope, it's like you lost your soul. There is nothing more. And then people are ready to waste their lives with little nothings. The Tibetans say, wake up. Life is important. Don't waste it with little nothings. It is as with a man wounded severely by an arrow. There is no time to waste. This is one necessary thing. It's necessary to realize this. It's necessary to bring yourself to this state of awakening. Again, nobody says that you shouldn't have fun. Nobody says that you shouldn't enjoy a sunset and that you shouldn't enjoy good food. But even those things are integrated in a bigger unit. The Buddhists in Buddhist meditation retreats, when they take lunch, it's not that they don't take lunch. They say, we could do 30 minutes more of Vipassana if we didn't take lunch. Yeah, but we are not robots. We cannot go on and on and on non-stop. Therefore, we need to take lunch. And then we simply express this thought. Now we stop from our long meditations and we are going to eat something to strengthen our bodies and to make spiritual practice possible afterwards. So they go and they make a prayer when they take lunch and they say, may this food not be for my personal ego and vanity, for beautification and arrogance, for this and that. May this food be for the maintenance of my body so that I can continue doing a spiritual practice 
and living a spiritual life. Then they do have their lunch. They do have rest and recreation. But it's with a purpose. Even the rest and recreation. I go to bed. Why do I go to bed? Not for the sake of going to bed, but for the sake of resting so that tomorrow I can wake up fresh and give it another big push. It's, it's even the sleep is consecrated as part of my effort. So the fourth so-called necessary thing is don't waste time. There is not a moment of time to be wasted. If you don't have that, it means you still don't fully hope and believe you can reach some form of eternity, some form of blissful reward. You say, yeah, maybe it's possible, but I don't know if it's worth it that I should give too much to that. Because it, because what if it doesn't exist and then I got cheated? I gave 110% and eventually I discovered it was all for nothing. This is doubt. And it's natural to have doubt up till a point. As long as it's not a pathological doubt, a morbid doubt, it's fine to resolve your doubts. Everybody had doubts. But remember that here, this time management shows a lot of things. Then the fifth of the necessary things. Five. One needs ability to fix the mind on a single thought, and we all know that thought being the thought of enlightenment, bodhicitta, even as does a mother who has just lost her only son. It is said in psychology that this is one of the major pains of life if a mother loses her son, not her daughter, her son, because there is an additional psycho analytical connection between the mother and the son because of the so-called Oedipus complex. It is not the same if a father loses a daughter. There is also that connection, but the father being a man is not so organically connected to his children as the mother who produced their flesh out of her own body. And because of this, the connection between the mother and the son is a particularly intense connection. And it is considered in psychology as one of the most intense torments, not breaking a marriage, not breaking, not having your house burned down. A hundred things are not as painful as a mother losing her son, that the child should die before the parents and the parents should witness the death of the child is considered to be one of the terrible pains of life. A woman that has lost her son Tell her not to think about it. Tell her to detach herself from it. Tell her not to care about it. It will be utterly impossible. The mind of that person is focused on this issue with unsurpassable intensity. And as you could see in the beautiful movie Samsara, the Tibetan movie Samsara made some, produced some 10-12 years ago, the wife is taking a motive from the Tibetan folklore, from the Tibetan oral traditions, and she tells to the husband a thing which is coming from the yogic tradition. Because the husband is a monk, 
but he is a monk who is a dropout monk and he is constantly obsessed with sexual desires. And because of this, he, he has lots of carnal passion. And the wife tells him, if you would have loved Buddha as much as you desire me, you would have reached enlightenment long time ago. Like on your list of priorities, my pussy is higher than Buddha. And you say you are a seeker of Buddha. You are not seeking Buddha that much. If you have to choose between my yoni and Buddha, you will choose my yoni ultimately. That's what is primary for you. And therefore, it says here, one needs to the ability to fix the mind on a single thought. That thought being generally your aspiration, your longing for spirituality even as does a mother who has just lost her only son. This is something to be meditated on everyone. Like if you focus on a black dot on a wall and do trataka, you can say it's really boring, it's not motivating, how can I do this, Uh, I'm not really interested, my mind is running away a hundred times. Is there something that you can focus your mind on as a mother who lost her only son. That kind of thing. That's what we're talking about. So try to think in spirituality. Some of you are relative beginners in spirituality. Some of you have done a bit of yoga and you are questioning your motivations big time. And some of you have already done years of active yoga and spiritual search And you know very well what you are made of and how you behave in the daily life and how your spiritual practice is going. So the question is touching different levels of those different categories of people. But the question is, is there something in your spirituality which focuses your thought as much as a mother would focus on her dead son Because Tibetan yoga says it is necessary. One of the necessary things is that you have to become a little bit obsessive with this issue. You have to really want and want and want. It's not going to come like, oh yeah, and uh, don't forget, maybe you give me enlightenment as well. That's not the way to address the issue. It's not something which comes out of a sleight of hand. It is something which comes from an intensity like the intensity of a mother who has just lost her only son. This comparison is so alive, so much from what is happening in daily life and comparing it with uh, spirituality. Really, you don't need to take it there. I remember one of my female teachers when I was young She said, if people would do as much effort for their spiritual practice as football fans do for their teams. No, there are football fans who spend more hours per day talking about their favorite teams, players, making prognostication, buying things, doing things, than people talk and do about their yoga practice, about their spiritual practice. This is why. Because to those people, 
talking and doing football, soccer, whatever you call it, is something which tickles them. It gives them a satisfaction. While for the people that have no hope, yoga is a little bit like a stillborn child. You know, it's like, yeah, sure, yeah, I am in yoga. And yeah, I admit there are some interesting things there. But there is not the thrill, the goosebumps, the thing which moves you crazily. And this is what needs to be reactivated and kept alive. This is what we call here in Agama the aspiration. And thus we move to number six on the list. Another necessary thing is to understand that there is no need to do anything, even as a cowherd whose cattle have been driven off by enemies understands that he can do nothing to recover them. That's a very twisted and profound one. Another necessary thing is to understand that there is no need of doing anything. Like, are you going to change the world? What difference are you going to make? Aren't things happening the way they are supposed to happen? Isn't there a Kali Yuga happening right now because of some cosmic reasons which are there? Would you be able, even ten of you, if you put your forces together, would you be able to stop Kali Yuga from unfolding right now? No. Of course you know that. And that is why in many, many things one needs to apply this philosophy of detachment. Yes, we can try to do good things. Man proposes, God disposes. It doesn't mean you should do nothing. But realize this comparison. Even as a cowherd whose cattle have been driven off by enemies understands that he can do nothing to recover them. Your cattle has been driven off by enemies. They overpowered you from the very beginning. Even if you catch them, they will overpower you again. What can you do? You can do nothing. Ah, if you change the circumstances, maybe. But the circumstances are set in this reality. And therefore, some of the basic circumstances, such as how you are born, your DNA, your astrological sign, the karma with which you came in this world, and many, many other things, they are set already. That's why here there is a wisdom. This is a santosha. This is a thing of let go and focus on what you have to focus. You know, like you are a wounded man that has no time to waste. Another necessary thing is to understand that there is no need of doing anything. Even as a cowherd whose cattle have been driven off by enemies understands that he can do nothing to recover them. Not from the existential condition where he is. If he becomes the king of the realm, he can come back and say, where are those dudes who 20 years ago when I was a cowherd, they stole my herd? then you are coming and putting things in a different perspective. But as long as you haven't changed the circumstances, like become a Buddha, become a clairvoyant seer, become a Siddha, endowed with Siddhis, and then you can put the question, you can set things in another way. But first you need to change the basic circumstances. As long as the circumstances do not change, 
What can be done? Things are the way they are. This is the famous surrender in which one has to understand the role of grace, the role of providence. As we explain in the Agama lecture on Santosha, cultivating contentment, which seems to many people so stupid, like you are cultivating an endless contentment. Doesn't this make you into a moron? Like look how life really is. What do you mean cultivating contentment? Isn't that stupid and unproductive? Actually, remember that one can deal with it much better in the moment when one cultivates this detachment and surrender. This one is a delicate one, it's a subtle one, like you say, okay, so it's necessary to understand that there is no need of doing anything. What about spiritual practice? Yeah, you do spiritual practice because you have to fix your mind like a mother who has lost her only son. You are like a man wounded by an arrow and there is no moment to be wasted. So it's obvious they are not referring to that. They are referring to the other things which create the drama of life, the things which create the soap opera of life. And you see people... Why aren't you doing a bit of meditation? Yeah, yeah, you know, but I need to do this and I need to... There is no need to do anything. This is the correct understanding. This is the direction. There is no need to do anything other than your aspiration towards a spiritual life that is not contained in this statement. It's the thing that people get distracted and confused so much with other things and... Some Tibetan yogi would tell them, chill out. There's nothing to be done. You are just trying to keep your mental monkey busy with a lot of things so that you have a feeling that your life is important and has some meaning. You keep yourself constantly doing trinkets here and there. Take a cold shower over your head and think again. There's no need to do anything, really, except change the circumstances. Stop being an ignorant. Stop being unconscious. Then the circumstances will change radically. So here, it's a very delicate way of putting it. Seven. It is primarily requisite. Now they use a strong statement. It is primarily requisite. Like, oh, oops, I forgot. There is one more important one which comes somewhere in the top of the first ones. But it's number seven on the list. But we can bump it up by simply saying the right words. It is primarily requisite for one to hunger after the yogic teachings even as a hungry man hungers after good food. There are people who come and say, oh yeah, you know, I don't wish to come to the courses, I don't wish to do this, you know, it makes me feel humiliated, it makes me feel like I have to beg for uh, yoga knowledge, Uh, it makes me, like there are people who are so arrogant and they have some, such demonic influences in their mind that they feel irritated by the fact that they have to chase knowledge. And simple psychological experience shows 
that if I would have all the knowledge of Agama put in a volume thick like this, and I would have made a hundred copies and dumped it in the lap of each and every one of you tonight, 99% of you would never go through it. You would put it on a shelf and never access it. That's the ridiculous part of it. Because the mind never puts value on what you get for free and easily. It's like in some countries where you have that Sunday newspaper, which is some local community newspaper, and it's for free. You get it for free because it gets the money from advertising and other things, and they sneak it through your door every day, and everybody even says, save a tree, you know, don't give me this newspaper, it's crap. If you wouldn't have printed this newspaper, you could have saved the tree. Like, people never read that. But when people buy an expensive magazine or something, then they read it from the first cover to the last because, gosh, this costed $15, you know. You have to read it. You paid a lot of money for it. This is how the human mentality works. That is why here we are dealing with a very strange thing. There are people whose real problem is, I I don't want to ask for the teachings or anything, either because I'm not interested. I came to yoga because my girlfriend heard about Tantra and she dragged me by one ear into Agama saying, you really have to come to the Tantra workshop. You really have to learn this and so on. And I came and I'm spinning my thumbs and I'm saying, yeah, right. Mm, my girlfriend, yeah, sure. I'm doing something for her right now and so on. You know, I'm not, my heart is not in it. I'm not longing for nirvana. I don't want to learn to do telepathy or to see auras. don't even believe it's possible, really. I'm wondering if those things even exist. And not being motivated, then the fact that somebody says, Oh no, I have to go to the questions and answers. Oh, I want to go to the heart chakra meditation. Oh, there will be a special Shambhala meditation. Like people say, so what? There are very different degrees. Look around yourselves. There are people who say, I am here. I spend money and time and I made efforts to come here. My heart wants these things. I'm not going to miss one opportunity. I want to go and have a nice meal. I don't do it at 8.30 when there is a satsang and find an excuse not to go to the satsang. I can do it at 6.30 when there is nothing. If I really want, I can bend my program around the program of the school so that I catch everything. But the question is that there appears a saturation. People go fed up at some point and they say, yeah, you know, you need a break. Then I'm often telling to people, if you got to some saturation, it's much more fair this. Pack your gear and go out there, out of the Agama bubble. Come back next season when you are hungry again. Be here if you are hungry for the teachings. These are unique teachings. We had people who disliked me or disliked something in the style of the school or disliked, I don't know, the fact that people are practicing sexual tantra, or whatever irked them. Different people are irked by different things. And those people came back to Agama five years later, and they said, once we got the taste of this, we went like crazy through India, Nepal, China, places, and we didn't find one single place 
where somebody was teaching anything even close to this. And they said, although we don't like you, Swami, as a person, like we're not going to come and kiss your big toe or anything, you know, we'll keep our distance, but we want to hear the teaching. Like the teaching is top quality and we don't want to miss that. At least that is necessary. So here it is. It is primarily requisite for one to hunger after the yogic teachings, even as a hungry man hungers after good food. Some people find that some of their colleagues are ridiculous because they go for everything. They want every initiation. They want every course. They want every lecture. They want every discourse. They want everything. And they say, hey, come on, you know, I'm more cool about these things. Tibetan yogis say that is the correct attitude. The correct attitude is to hunger for the yogic teachings. Many people minimize the yogic teachings because you can find yoga at every corner of a street in western cities. But there is yoga and there is yoga. You are not going to hear the teachings of the yoga of the disciple in those yogas which are at every block in the major cities. You are not going to hear teachings about how to control the astral body or how to change the resonance of it in those courses. Everybody who has been to Agama for three months knows this is different. There are not many places in the world where you get this kind of stuff. That's why I'm telling you this. Yes, when you find the right methods, you have to hunger for them. You have to go like a hungry man goes for good food, you know, like even higher incentive. Not like a hungry man goes for food. Like a hungry man goes for good food. It's like double incentive. I remember when I was talking with some Buddhist monks, Tibetan Buddhist monks, and they were telling me, it's like, how did you get the initiation and the mantras for Tumo and Pova? There was one Westerner who had been, was a Tibetan Buddhist monk, and he said, I've been a monk for 17 years. And in 17 years, I being a monk, being ordained as a Buddhist monk, I heard two times that somebody would be giving some initiation in the six yogas of Naropa, which is the Tumo, the Pova, and that. Like, he was very hungry. He said, where are those teachings? Where can I find a teacher who will teach me those teachings? Therefore, it is important to not to be ashamed. Like some people, their friend tells them, Oh, come on, you are too much. Uh, you are a bit of a fanatic, aren't you? Don't get ashamed. Don't listen. Those are just the demons trying to discourage you through the voice of your best friend who is expressing sarcasm, cynicism and other diabolic things trying to make you be less enthusiastic, less pure in your heart, less devoted. There's nothing wrong with being devoted and pure in your heart. There is nothing wrong with being enthusiastic since the very word enthusiasm comes from the Greek words entheos. Theos means God and Theos is in God. When you are enthusiastic about your yoga teachings, you are in God, with God. 
It's a divine flow in you when you manifest enthusiasm. So there is nothing shameful about you. Don't feel ridiculous. Don't allow other people to ridiculize you just because you feel hunger for the yogic teachings and you are like a hungry man going for good food. That's exactly what the Tibetan gurus advised hundreds of years ago. It is a primary, it is primarily requisite for one to hunger after the yogic teachings. Like, teacher, give me the next teaching. What is coming next? What is my next level of initiation? What new yoga techniques are now becoming available to me? What will I be able to do with those? Some people say, yeah, this is how you can keep the people dependent. You always lure them with a carrot in front of their nose. This is the famous proverb which says, the beauty is in the eyes of the onlooker. A thief thinks that everybody around is a thief because a thief cannot imagine that other people wouldn't want to misappropriate other. So uh, thieves always think that everybody has a bit of a thief into them and maybe they don't do it because they are afraid. They are chicken, but if they would be bold, they would do what I do. They would just steal around as much as possible, because that's the cool thing to do. That's the natural thing. Everybody is a bit of a thief, aren't they? Therefore, it's the same thing here. Remember, when some people have this aspiration and hunger, some people say, yeah, yeah, Swami got you by the balls, right? Agama got you by the nose, right? Now you are so dependent on this. What's wrong with this dependence? You are, de- you have been dependent on your mother for seven years to clothe you and to feed you and to protect you. And then you are not going to get born in this world because you are going to be dependent on a woman who is just a simple mortal and it's natural. You will be dependent of your mother. You will be dependent of a guru. You will be dependent of different persons until you grow up and you can stand on your own feet. There's no shame that for a period of time you should be dependent. There's a shame if you are dependent forever and you cannot stand on your own feet at some point. And remember, of course, there's no shame to be dependent on God. Even Jesus, who manifested powers which were incomprehensible to the normal reason and still behaved towards God, as a child would behave to his loving parent. So, this is a matter of candor. You have to learn to be candid like children, to have this simplicity. Yes, actually, if I am interested in yoga... I am and I'm hungry for the yogic teachings. I don't care about the fact that somebody says, oh yeah, but you actually are controlled through that. Control through what? Control for what? The eighth of the necessary things. One needs to be as confident of one's mental ability as does a strong man of his physical ability to hold fast to a precious gem which he has found. A strong man has found a gem and everybody wants to clobber him and steal that gem. And the man is confident. This diamond, nobody can take it from me because I'm the strongest in the pack. 
I'm strong and smart, nobody will outwit me, nobody will be able to take this precious possession from me. In a similar way, say the Tibetan yogis, one needs to be as confident of one's mental ability. Like, I can do it. Yes, we can. We, I can do this thing. I can reach enlightenment. I can understand spiritual things. Yes, I have understood things correctly. And if I have any doubt, I can ask once more and ask once more. But I have the confidence that once I have been put on the path, I can follow the path. I will not deviate. I will not get lost. I am not a weakling. I am not an idiot. I am not confused. I can trust in my own mental power. I, you give me a mantra and then three days later I come and say, can I really meditate with a mantra because I feel so uh, insecure about it? Yes, you can. Trust in your mental ability. You can play this game. You need, if you don't have this ability, you become a totally insecure person. The first thing which you need to get sometimes is to strengthen this psychological thing. Like some people when they come to yoga, they are so hesitant. They are so insecure. And the first thing which yoga does for them, it sublimes the energy from their muladhara and svadhisthana. It gives them a stronger manipura. And then people suddenly feel awakened, vertical, straight as rain. People feel confident and they say, gosh, I didn't feel like this since 20 years, you know. I was such a jellyfish. I was so confused. I did three months of yoga and I feel like I'm so clear. And so this confidence, this is not an ego. This is not arrogance. You can be at the same very humble you can be at the same time very tempered and at the same time you have this confidence. So many humble men and women practice spirituality, humbleness, love, abnegation, selflessness and yet they had this secret confidence like sure, although I'm humble and I ask for mercy, I need help, all the angels and the divine powers Please support me. I am not arrogant to say I don't need support. I am not competing with God in any way. I can use all the universal support. And at the same time, I have the confidence what I can do, I can do. Once I have this support, I can do it. This is a very important thing, which is almost like an NLP self-suggestion, self-hypnosis factor, which simply says some people in spirituality are so ruined, so destroyed, that even their basic core, their personality, their own self-confidence is, is completely nil. That's why the first belief which you need, you don't need to believe in God. We told you from the beginning, you don't need. If you have an intuition in your heart, if your mind tells you that it could be possible, if your mind tells you that you've got nothing to lose and everything to win, or if you have an inner argument which is strong enough, then it's fine. But we tell to people what you need in the beginning 
You don't need to believe in God. First and foremost, you need to believe in yourself. It's beautiful in Buddhism. Buddhism puts this because Buddhism does not speak about God. And it's not because Buddhism doesn't say there exists something divine. Because Buddhism says that there is something divine. There is something which is eternal, absolute, infinite, immutable. It's called the Buddha nature. It's called the Buddhas of the past, present and future. It's called the Dharmakaya, the divine body of Dharma. It is called the void, Shunyata. There are different names for it. And of course it is incomprehensible, so you can call it Bora Bora or Abracadabra as well, because you still don't understand what it is. You only think you understand. If I call it the void or the Buddha nature, then you shake your head wisely and say, mm-hmm, oh yeah, Buddha nature. It's just words. You don't know what the Buddha nature is before you taste it, before you jump into it and bathe into it. So you can call it abracadabra. There is something called abracadabra, which is infinite, eternal, perfect, absolute, immutable. So Buddhist, Buddhism does talk about something divine, which is infinite, absolute. It just doesn't call it God. If you are disturbed by it being called God, call it void. Call it the Buddha nature. As somebody joked, just reverse the letters and call it dog. You know, it's, it's not God, it's dog. You believe in dog. Fine. Good for you. It doesn't matter. It's something which is a code word for something which is inexpressible and unintelligible by the mind. But intuitively you know that it is there. So that's why in Buddhism, this is a beautiful part of Buddhism, because Buddhism simply says, believe you can do it. If Buddha Gautama did it 25 centuries ago, you can do it. You are with nothing inferior to Buddha. If you do what Buddha did, you will achieve what Buddha achieved. It is as simple as that. So commit yourself to practice. Your deeds can save you. It doesn't matter what else you believe. Buddha himself said, if Buddha Ishvara, I'm sorry, if Lord Ishvara, which means God, created the world or not, it is irrelevant because when you will die, nobody will ask you what you believe. You will be asked what you have done. What is your karma? What, what is your merit? Therefore, it's better to die without a belief, but with a full merit, than to have an absurd sectarian belief, like the Temple of the Sun people, who cut off their testicles thinking that the aliens will take their soul on the Hale-Bob comet. You can't say they didn't have faith, right? Guys, try to think what it take. The girls don't understand that one. But you as guys understand. What would it take for you to cut off your balls for a cause? Tonight. No? It's like, it would have to be a hell of a cause to cause them. Like, those men had faith. Golly, you know, by golly, they had a huge faith. But they were a bunch of morons and losers, however. Because they cut off their balls to go with the aliens on the Hale-Bob comet. No, and my personal opinion is they are probably grinding teeth in hell right now thinking why have I been such an idiot. No, this is uh, what I'm saying. It's not only about that. You have to trust in yourself. You have to believe that you have the power to change 
circumstances that you can do it. If you don't have this core power, you are so empty that I can talk to you about Shiva and Tantra and spirituality and the astral body and the causal body and the wind is blowing through your belly button. You are like a like rags in the wind, you know. There is no structure in you. There is no... First of all, you have to gather yourself upon yourself and stand up, stand tall and simply say, now it starts. Now I start. Now I'm ready to do something. No, That's where it starts from. So sometimes yoga... It was, I think, Osho Rajneesh who said, everybody is coming and asking me about meditation. But everybody is on Prozac. So I have to get them out of medication. They don't need meditation. They need to get out of medication. No, So they even wrote an article of this, quoting some of his articles, some of his discourses, which was called From Medication to Meditation. For many people, the first part of yoga is to get out of depression and to get out of being a jellyfish and a non-entity and first of all stand strong and say, okay, now I'm a strong person. Then of course there comes the risk if you are a strong person, you can misuse that because some people, as soon as they feel strong, they become assholes, they become real jerks. So sometimes many people would say that person should have stayed a non-entity. At least as long as they were jellyfishes, they were not harming anybody. Now you made them yoga teachers, you made them strong people, they are so self-confident, and now they start abusing it. There is a risk always in bringing people to some personal power, because then the question is how they are going to use that personal power. Buddha had his personal power, but he used it with compassion to benefit the rest of the world. But Genghis Khan, as soon as he found his personal power, he became the scourge of the world. He became the whip of God, you know. He became the the horror of the world. So um, here, of course, we have several steps of this process. But the first thing is this. You need to be yourself. One needs to be as confident of one's mental ability as does a strong man of his physical ability to hold fast to a precious gem which he has found. No hesitation. Don't come in spirituality and then start getting wobbly knees. Oh yeah, but can I really do it? But I feel so afraid. Like there's no time to be afraid. Right? You are on the roller coaster of your life. Surrender. Go forward. Have this mental confidence. You can do it. This is necessary. There is no weakling. There is no wimp that reached to enlightenment. That's why the classical texts say you need to be heroic. What heroism? Are you going to any battle? There is a battle with your own weakness, with your own nothingness, with your own confusion and delusion. And this is has to be one. You have to be strong. Nine. One must expose the fallacy of dualism as one does the falsity of a liar. Liar! Like somebody exposes dualism. Tibetan yogis have said eventually, at the highest level, everything is monistic. 
Therefore, even when the beginning teachings are always dualistic, because that's the only way to express them, and beginners in the first level intensive of yoga, they would go crazy if we teach non-dualism in the first level. Almost nobody would be able to follow or get something out of it. Nevertheless, when we teach Kashmiri Shaivism workshops, and especially in the fourth level of teachings of Agama, what we call it here, the advanced teachings, there the angle is reminding constantly of non-dualism. Like there is duality, and duality is very useful as a teacher. It's a very good pedagogue. It's guiding you, and there is some point where you should remember that that duality was just a prop. It was just a crouch for walking, and once you don't need it anymore, you can discard of it. There is a higher understanding than dualism. Not everybody is prepared in the beginning for that. However, if in this school we would teach only dualism, then somebody would come and say, liars! This is not the complete truth. For example, let's take it as simple, and I don't say that. It results 100% from the Tibetan texts. There are many religions, Christianity is a brilliant example of that, which are preaching their final theological message as dualism. You can never be one with God. You will always remain a servant of God, separate from God. Tibetan yogis say, liar! Maybe it's good for the masses, but you should have a department, a PhD level, some place where you can also tell the non-dualistic truth. As long as the non-dualistic truth is there, is not there, it's exactly like you have a pyramid that is decapitated. You are missing exactly the tip of the pyramid, which is the one which produces that special energy characteristic to the shape of the pyramid. A pyramid without the top is not a complete pyramid. And thus, it's exactly like this. Every spirituality, even though it can address to the young souls in a dualistic way to make them understand the forces of the universe, because the universe is yin and yang, and it can be understood that way, but beyond the yin and yang, there is the Tao, the Tao which surpasses and transcends the yin and the yang. In the yin-yang symbol which is out there, you can never just do the yin and the yang. You always have to do the circle around them. That circle around them is very important because that is the Tao. And the yin and yang without the Tao is like a pyramid that is decapitated. It's like you stop the universe at the level of two. But above the two, there is the one. And the one must never be missed, must never be left out of the picture. That is why here the Tibetans are like, do not allow people to preach partial truths because they can become very delusive. In the name of many of these dualistic religions where people think that they fight against the devil, people are doing some of the most abominable things. 
there have been crusades, there has been inquisition, there have been terrorist bombings, there have been a crazy things, all of them in the name of God fighting against the devil. That kind of mentality is not the complete understanding of the things. Tibetan yogis have noticed that and they have said one necessary thing is one must expose the fallacy of dualism as one does the falsity of a liar. Because that's not the ultimate truth. And ten, finally, one must have confidence in he that is, which means in God, but you can express it as the Buddha, you can express it as the Buddha consciousness, so you can express it in Buddhist ways. One must have confidence in he that is as being the sole refuge, even as an exhausted crow far from land has confidence in the mast of the ship upon which it rests. Like when a bird is far, far away from the shore, if it doesn't have a support, it will fall and drown, exhausted. And then it sees a little ship in the middle of the waves of a storm, and it wants to sit on it. And something would say, oh, is that strong enough? Is that a reliable support? Can you trust that that thing will not break apart and sink? It looks, it doesn't matter. It's your only resource. It's your lust defense. It's your sole refuge. And that is why there is something in the spiritual attitude that eventually when everything is lost, one comes to what the mystics have called, and you had a beautiful lecture a couple of weeks ago about that, what one comes to this dark night of the soul, and when you reach the dark night of the soul, it's like nothing works. Nothing, you, you cannot rely on anything. You lose a lot of your faith. You lose a lot of your confidence. Everything seems to be confusing. You are about to break apart. You are not having, you don't know what to trust in and what not, who to trust in and who not. And then there is only one refuge. Take the divine model. Either you believe in Shiva or you believe in Brahman or God the Father or Buddha, the Buddhas of the past, present and future, the Dharmakaya, the Buddha nature, whatever it is, and trust in it. One must have confidence in he that is, as being the sole refuge, even as an exhausted crow far from land has confidence in the mast of the ship upon which it rests. It's like, finally, you have a repose. Finally, you have a rest. This injunction is not something which you use in 90% of your spiritual life. This injunction is something which happens exactly when you get into those desperate moments. When you get into des those desperate moments, that's the only thing which works. To have a sort of an irrational, absolute confidence into he that is. That sentence was used by the translator of this text, which is W.Y. Evans Vance, an Oxford scholar, by analogy, of course, he that is, by the analogy with the God of Moses. Because when Moses asked God, 
who are you who gave me this tablet? People down there are going to ask you, what demon did you talk to and give you this? What sort of diabolic pact did you do with whom? Who is the one? Why should we obey to the one who wrote this tablet? And so Moses asked, and the divine consciousness answered, I am he that I am. I am the I am, which is a very, very profound answer because it points at the nature of the I-ness, at the who I am. It points at the nature of Atman and of the Supreme Consciousness, but we will not approach that tonight. It's beyond the purpose of this discourse. But here, um, Ivan Svens, the translator, cleverly twisted the text so that the Judeo-Christian readers who will read this text in English language, they will have a perception of what it is. Some Buddhist commentators, 20 years later, 30, 50 years later, they criticize Ivan's Vents for this, because they said, that you are, it's like you are talking about a personal God, and there is no personal God in Buddhism, and definitely it's not a he or a she, or something like that. So, you kind of distorted the message of the yoga of the disciple, and of Tibetan yoga in general. And other scholars defended him, because they said he did not translate ad literam, which would be incomprehensible for many people who are not Tibetan, or deeply steeped in that tradition. He translated it suggestively, like one must have confidence in... uh, that mysterious thing in he that is, that unknown, supreme, absolute thing, as being the sole refuge, but the word taking refuge is used, because people in Buddhism, when they convert themselves to Buddhism, they say, I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, the three jewels, the three gems of the Buddhism. And therefore... The ob- it's like you take refuge in what? In Buddha. What is Buddhism? Buddhism is just a one-man show. Is a religion based on Gautama Buddha. Were there no Buddhas before Gautama Buddha on the face of this earth? Were there no enlightened person after Buddha on the face of this earth? Plenty. Padmasambhava, Guru Rinpoche, the founder of Tibetan Buddhism. Milarepa, just to give examples of Tibet only. Tsongkhapa, the reformer, and so many others. So, of course, you cannot say that that's why the Buddhism doesn't talk about Buddha. Very seldom. He says, I bow down to Buddha, but it means the Buddha nature. It means the Buddhas of the past, present, and future. It means that supreme reality which transcends past present and future, which is beyond time, and which represents the permanent conscious support background of the universe. This is the meaning of it. So that's why here the translation is a bit stretched to to be comprehensible for the Western reader, but nevertheless it hits in a very suggestive way. One must have confidence in that supreme reality as being the sole refuge even as an exhausted crow far from land has confidence in the mast of the ship upon which it rests. Remember when people have no more that hope, then there comes a total dark night of the soul, which is the abyss of hopelessness. 
when people don't think that there is something eternal, a fulcrum of the universe, then everything becomes chaos, total chaos. There is order only as long as there is a fulcrum. Exactly like in mathematics, where you define the three axes of coordinates, x, y, z, and they have a zero point, the point where they meet. That point is the center of all the diagrams and graphs. And if there is no zero point, there is no referential, and then you don't have a graph, you don't have a space, you don't have a volume, you cannot define anything absolutely, everything will have to be defined only relatively. That is why this is a very important thing. If, if in your soul, if in your mind, if in your life there is an absolute, then you are centered. You have hope. If in your life and mind and soul there is absolutely no absolute, which is, is not possible because the absolute is there and the deepest layers of the subconscious mind are touching it anyway. You are in contact with it. But there exists at least a superficial. At the level of the conscious mind, there is a very stubborn isolation, insulation from the input coming from the subconscious mind. Like, no, 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 I don't feel this. I don't know about this. I don't want to know about this. Then automatically... For such a person, there will come a great abyss of depression, nothingness, fruitlessness, complete uselessness, a dark night of the soul of the most bitter, because the person has first of all lost hope. There is no more hope because there is no center, there is no referential point. That referential point must be kept at all costs. Say, although I am stupid, although I am humble, although I am not practicing seriously my spirituality, although I did not reach to deep enough levels where I can really perceive things with the clarity of one like Ramakrishna, although I am not so developed, I admit that somewhere, somehow, there may exist a fulcrum of the universe, a core of all things, an immutable absolute point that holds everything. If I am ready to accept that, then the crow has a mast to land upon when it is lost in the middle of the sea. And uh, don't doubt it for a second. In spiritual practice, there may very well, if your turn has come for that, if it is your turn for such a test, there may come a point, and it's not for children, it's not a kindergarten test. This is a test for PhDs in spirituality. There may come a test where you'll feel completely lost into some sea of the mind, usually, which makes no sense and which tends to point to chaos. And then this voice from your heart has to come and say, no, no, I will not admit that. Even as Jesus dying on the cross 
and saying, My God, my God, why have you left me? Jesus doesn't say, My God, perhaps you don't even exist. He still says, I know that you are, but I don't feel you. And it feels as if you left even me, the great Jesus. So he keeps the fulcrum. The, the center is there. There is no chaos in the universe of Jesus. There is order because that central point is there. That central point is essential. You have to keep it. Many people ask themselves, What's the usefulness of, uh, you know, having this intuition of the heart? Why can't we just consider spirituality as a sort of totally chaotic thing? Uh, no, there is chaos, nothing makes sense. It doesn't work that way. That's why the ancient hermeticists, they said, the when you come out of chaos, the universe becomes a cosmos. Cosmos is the Greek word which defines an orderly universe. There are seven chakras, there are seven planes, the seventh of them corresponds to the crown and it corresponds to the supreme consciousness and it corresponds to the dharmakaya and it corresponds to the Buddha nature, to the paramatman, the cosmic consciousness and that is sort of a center of all things. If you keep that clear, then you have a refuge in the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul and other such moments in spirituality, they are coming precisely to test you on that. If you have anchored yourself firmly into that. That's why it's not a test for beginners. Beginners don't usually get a dark night of the soul because they would be blown away in no time. It's, it's coming to one like Jesus and to one like Francis of Assisi and others, no, because for them it's a sort of an ultimate test of surrender. Like, go there and land on the mast of that ship. It's going to hold you. It's going to really be a prop. It looks so small. It looks so frail. And yet that is the thing which upholds the whole reality, the whole universe, and it holds the whole universe. There is place for the whole universe on it. Don't worry. It is infinite, but that infinite is within. It's in another dimension, which is not one of the dimensions of space and time. These are, according to the Tibetan gurus, the ten necessary things, and they give us a meditation upon... Do I have the necessary things? How much of the necessary things do I have to make this great trip? As somebody asked, there are some three subjects left, so probably three more weeks will go with uh, the Tibetan yoga, after which we uh, will move to other subjects, which I consider that are worth explaining to the whole school, in such discourses. Having finished the ten necessary things, let's just be peaceful for a couple of minutes so that we end by allowing these truths to sink into the subconscious mind and then let us stop for tonight and part. 
And that will do. With this we have finished for tonight. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining in this discourse. We'll continue next time with the final chapters from the Yoga of the Disciple. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.